Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. If this show is about anything, it's about liberty. And one aspect of liberty is freedom of speech. So today's guest is an absolute expert in the area of freedom of speech. So he's here to talk to us about it. He's a criminal defense and a civil liberties litigator. He's the co-founder of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, originally the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. He's written op-eds for the Boston Globe and for the Wall Street Journal. And he's also the author of numerous books, including Three Felonies a Day. Harvey Silverglate, welcome to the show. Good to be here. It is an absolute honor to have you here. You call yourself a free speech absolutist. Yes. What does that mean? That means <clears throat> that I think that free speech is so important that it should not have any exceptions to it, with the exception of a few areas that have been laid out by the Supreme Court of the United States. For example, yelling falsely yelling fire in a crowded movie theater. That's frequently misstated as yelling fire in a crowded movie theater. If there's a fire in a crowded movie theater, you want to yell fire, but falsely yelling fire because that would cause a, a destructive um, scramble to the uh, exits. Um, and um, I don't like the exception uh, of libel and slander um, but I accept it. The reason I don't like it is because I would have much rather have a regime that goes as follows. If you defame somebody, libel being uh, in writing, slander being orally, uh, I think that the Supreme Court would be wise to, 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 to issue a ruling saying the following that you should be given three days to issue a retraction rather than simply be subject to a defamation suit right away. And if you issue a retraction, then the defamation suit should not be allowed to go forward. Um, so I have a limited acceptance of the current uh, doctrine of, of um, uh, you know, uh, on defamation. Um, so uh, I'm, um, I'm, but I am a free speech absolutist. I believe that you should be able to insult people. Uh, you should be able to uh, say things that upset a lot of people. Um, and um, the uh, the solution to this is, is that the person that you insult has a right to insult you back, or has a right to defend himself or herself against the insult. Um, and um, I'm very upset by the current trend, for example, in college campuses, where if a student, you say something, if one student says something to another that upsets a student, the student who has done the upsetting is suddenly brought up on charges because um, he or she has uh, dented the ego of, of a classmate. These are absurd. Um, these are absurd proceedings that result more because there are so many administrators on college campuses that it certainly makes no sense and is not consistent with academic freedom. You brought up an interesting point to me because you say brought up on charges, but you don't mean criminal charges, right? You mean nope. like brought before a school board or, or some such thing as that? Correct. So 
I've the way that I look at it, right, is that if it's a private college or a private university, I don't I've always looked at free speech as something only the government can violate. So if a private college or a private university only wants certain speech on its campus, it seems to me it would violate their freedom of speech to tell them they have to allow whatever speech is taking place. How am I wrong about that? Well, you are wrong because, like it or not, and I don't like it, but it's a fact of life, virtually every private American college and university takes federal money. There are a couple of exceptions. Um, I believe some um, um, the exceptions are some, um, uh, you know, re religious schools which refuse to take federal money. Um, but um, because they take federal money, they are subject to constitutional limitations. Um, I don't like that, but it is a fact of life. So that wouldn't then apply. Well, that, see, that's the inherent problem I think that we have is everybody's got their hand out, it seems, for the for the government, which then allows th that sort of exception to come into play. Well, you take our money, we can tell you what to do. Because my first, what, I, what I'm going to ask you next is the social media thing. Because people claim that it, Twitter or Facebook are censoring people. But it's their platform. So I don't consider it censorship. Now, when the government is telling them or that they ought to be censoring certain information or not allowing information on, whatever, that's a big problem. But the problem then is to go after the government, not to criticize the, the private companies. So in, th in that sense, like if a, if a person owns a restaurant, for instance, and that person doesn't want to serve cake for whatever reason, they don't like guys named Leibowitz with a colic in the front of their hair. And they say, get the hell out of here. We're not serving you a cake. It seems that should be their right to do so. So you're not saying that the government should be able to tell any private entity that they have to allow speech on their premises. The, the the reason you make an exception for schools is because the schools are so deeply funded by the federal government. Correct. I do not believe that Twitter or Facebook should be subject to any government constriction with regard to what they say or not. Of course, they're subject to libel and slander laws, but they are not subject, they should not be subject to government control. Really, the old in the old days, the telephone company um, was subject to certain restrictions because it, the theory was it used the wires of interstate communication and therefore was subject to federal some federal control. I never liked that as a as a, as a liberal libertarian. I didn't like that. But uh, Facebook um, and uh, Twitter and so forth, they're free to engage in whatever they want. Um, and um, they can let somebody have a voice on, on their lines or they could uh, prohibit somebody from having a voice. By having enough of these kinds of outlets, if somebody is slandered uh, on, on one uh, uh, or, or, or you know, misrepresented on one uh, 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 platform, they can go on another platform to answer. So as long as there are multiple platforms, this should not be a problem. The old days when the AT&T had a monopoly, it was the only telephone company. And, and therefore, if something was uh, said, uh, uh, you know, on, on some line uh, that, that was uh, 
you know, from AT&T, um, you had no, if, or if AT&T, I represented the Boston Phoenix once, an alternative newspaper in Boston. They had sex ads, um, you know, men or women would advertise and saying, you know, I mean, we would like to have, you know, a, a racing night with somebody um, and, uh, you know, reply here. And the telephone, New England Telephone Company, uh, cut off their, and they had phone lines so you can call in in order to make a date for whatever kind of sexual activity you happen to like to participate in. Uh, men, women, animals, everything. And um, the phone company cut them off, saying that this was a prostitution service. And uh, I brought a lawsuit on behalf of the Phoenix in the state superior court, and we won. We won because the court found that the phone company had a monopoly. The Phoenix couldn't go to any other company. And having a monopoly, it has to take all comers. Um, and um, this was all lawful activity, and it was not like advertising for crime, uh, and we won that case. Now, it would be different because there are so many multiple, the, the phone company, as a result of a federal antitrust suit, no longer has a monopoly. We now have all, all, all manner and kind of uh, companies that will offer you uh, phone service. You mentioned slander and libel a, a couple times, and I, first of all, think that they're probably used way too much. I'm not even sure they should be exceptions at all. I tend to think they should be, but I'm open to being convinced. But I had an experience with uh, libel in that my, a friend and I, I, I served 25 years in prison. And while in prison, a friend of mine and I wrote a book criticizing the prison system. Now, obviously, we were two convicted felons and our word is, you know, going to be suspect. So in order to rectify that, what we did was we named times, dates, people as much as we possibly could. Correctional officers name, counselors names, whatever, knowing that this stuff takes place on camera. And therefore, if anybody really wanted to check, they could go look it up. The problem came when it was time to publish in publisher. It, it, the first, the publisher that we went to was afraid to publish. They said, they, they, well, this is libel. We said, well, no, it's not. We're telling the truth. And they said, no, what you're going to have to do is change all the names, change your names and change the name of the place where this stuff took place at. But that would have defeated the whole purpose because now we're not exposing anything. It might as well be a, a work of fiction. And then we did our research and we, I mean, we found New York Times v. Sullivan. We, we put together a really strong argument, but the publishers simply wouldn't do it because they were so afraid of a lawsuit. Is that common, one? And two, is that a real problem with having the libel and slander exceptions? Yeah. One of the problems with the legal system is if there were a simple and quick way of getting rid of a suit like a frivolous lawsuit, then uh, you could really blame a publisher for, uh, in your case, it was clearly constitutionally protected. It should have been no problem at all. I don't think that the publisher was worried so much about losing the case because no lawyer 
with a half a brain would advise them that they were going to lose that case. The problem is that the judicial system is so drawn out and so lengthy and so expensive that there is a penalty for being sued for defamation um, if uh, even if you're going to win eventually. You're talking about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, two or three years. And that's a, that's a result of the fact that the legal system doesn't provide quick ways to, to, to terminate some of these, uh, these cases. So in a case like, say this interview ends and you, someone asks you and you publicly say, God, that Leibowitz, what a horrible interviewer, he sucked. Obviously, that's protected. But if I follow a, file a lawsuit, now you have to respond and defend it. And I can, if, if I push this thing, ultimately make you engage me in this process, right? Right. Yeah. See, that seems ridiculous to me. It, it is ridiculous. Yeah. And, and it, I'm a lawyer. Yeah. It, it seems like the risk of allowing people to slander and, and libel one another is less than having that sort of a, a process in place because I can defend myself. If somebody says something about me, if you say that about me and I think it's not true, I just say, Hey, look, watch the tape. You you can check it. If, if someone says about you, this guy's no good. He's a liar. You can come out and say, well, l listen, I've got friends, family. I've got a you know reputation going back 50, 60 years, whatever. You can defend yourself in the same public where you were criticized. But if it's got to be in the court of law, this is just a nightmare. Correct. Okay, so you say that the freedom of speech is the most important right that we have. Why? Because it's a fundamental for securing all the others. If you have another right violated, your right to vote is being violated. Um, your right to um, uh, freedom of search and seizure is being violated. One of the ways and the most effective and the quickest and the least expensive way of redressing these grievances is through publicity, through embarrassing the people who have uh, deprived you of rights uh, and uh, having them subject to public opinion, public opprobrium, public scrutiny, journal, uh, journalistic uh, scrutiny. So it is the single most important right. And if that is taken away, then uh, everything else pales in insignificance. What do you think is the biggest threat today to freedom of speech? Well, it depends on which forum you're talking about. Uh, I think that the biggest problem we have now in terms of the long-term health of freedom of speech is our schools, including our colleges, where the notion is that if if one student says something to another student that hurts the student's ego, um, that that should be the subject of a disciplinary matter. Um, if you uh, say something to a gay student, you say something to a woman, you say something sexist, um, you say something racist, um, 
that somehow then you go before a dean uh, and you're charged with what's called harassment. Well, that isn't harassment. Uh, and um, you get disciplined in, in school. And if you are in a private school, it's much harder to redress in court. Um, not impossible. As I said earlier, if school takes public funds, it's subject to some restrictions. But um, I think that the, uh, the campuses are treating students like uh, hothouse flowers. They're not. If a student is called a name, student can call a name back. Besides, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. We, we used to have a slogan. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never harm me. And it's, it's true now as it was when I was a kid. It seems like, I've heard you talk about the importance of open discourse, especially in, you're talking about 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds just heading to school. And it seems if we're going to, if that's the type of country that, that we're heading towards, or maybe, you know, that we're already there, even if it's not a free speech issue, even if it's just like what Tocqueville talked about, where he, he said, you know, the, the public censure and the, it can be also be a powerful mechanism for suppression. But if people are so afraid to hear ideas that they differ with, it just seems like that's headed toward a very bad place. Because if, if I differ with somebody markedly, and we end up having a debate. Maybe we come to, together. I address, I adjust some of my views. She address some, adjusts some of hers, or maybe she convinces me entirely, or maybe a third party hears the debate and, and changes his mind. It just seems that you're suppressing all of that out of the fear that somebody's feelings are going to be hurt. Sometimes it's not even an insult. It's an idea that they find offensive. Well, first of all, uh, in a free society, if you're not willing to have your feelings hurt, you should really move to Russia, because <laughs> the whole the whole notion of free speech is somebody's ego, somebody's feelings are going to be hurt, somebody's going to lose the debate, going to lose that verbal battle, and um, you know there are winners and losers. If you happen to lose one, you just uh, you know lick your wounds and you go back in the ring. That's the, that's the price of living in a free society. There are lots of benefits living in a free society. But you have to be willing to have a thick enough skin to live in a, thick, in a free society. Sure. My gripe about college campuses is it is trying to create a generation of hothouse flowers. It's very dangerous for our democracy. I've told people... 25 years in prison, I was relatively secure and, and safe on a, on a regular basis. I didn't have a lot of threats coming my way. And I'll tell you, I would take freedom over safety any day of the week. It's such an easy choice that I can't even fathom people who, not even physical safety, but their feelings, like this person insulted my hair or my ethnicity or my race. I mean, the, the, the other day on Facebook, I, I was debating somebody about conspiracy theories and somebody comes out and says, well, look at his last name. That should tell you everything you need to know. You know, pointing to the whole idea that Jews are, are behind, you know, global banking, conspiracy, whatever. What the hell do I care? You know what I mean? This guy's an idiot. I don't, if he wants to think that he's going to think it, whether he's allowed to say it or not, and he's going to find somebody to say it to regardless. So what difference does it make? Like, I, I can't, that's something I just don't grasp. 
that degree of sensitivity where we're willing to sacrifice liberty to just be protected from everything we find uncomfortable. Yep. Yeah, the the law doesn't allow protection of from uh, from discomfort. Um it's it's that's quite clear. Well, it's a good thing too. So I to, to change the subject a little bit. I heard you say that you're for abolishing the FBI. Yes. And I say change this up with a little bit because the FBI has done a lot from what I understand to suppress freedom of speech and the right to privacy. But what is the argument for just getting rid of it? Getting rid of them is this. From the day of its creation by John Edgar Hoover, the FBI has been a corrupt anti-liberty organization from inception it has a culture it is in my view impossible to change the culture do we need a federal investigation organization probably we do however it should not be the fbi what we have to do is completely abolish it fire the director fire all the agents, get rid of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and start a new agency with a different name, different agents, and a different director, in the hopes that you will therefore get rid of the culture that J. Edgar Hoover started. And so I'm for, I, I understand I'm not unrealistic that we need a federal criminal investigative organization but it's got to take radical steps to get rid of <clears throat> that culture of lying and cheating and thieving um, and setting people up. Um, I have uh, the following situation arises in my law practice. I get a call from an FBI agent. Mr. Silverglade, we'd like to interview your client. I said, sure. Could you bring him up to FBI headquarters? I said, no, we'll do it in my office. You want to come to my office? Well, okay. They come in with two agents. Why two? Always two. This is by regulation. One asks the questions and the other one takes notes. Those notes are then typed up back in the office in a report called a Form 302, 302. That is the official, the official record of the questions and the answers. I have never seen a 302 that's accurate. The 302s are always what the agents wanted to hear more than what they actually heard. So when the agents come into my office, and here's why I insist it be done in my office, I have a tape recorder on the table. I said, okay, let's go. Ask the first question. I pushed the on button. I said, Mr. Silverblatt, we, ha we have a regulation. We're not allowed to have these recorded. This is true, by the way. Can you imagine a regulation prohibiting the tape recording of interviews and relying only on the notes and the 302 report? I said, well, oh, this is really too bad because I have a policy of my own. My policy is to never allow a client to be interviewed by a police officer, an FBI agent, or anybody else other than his mother That when it's not recorded. And so we're going to have to end this interview now. Bye-bye. Thanks for coming. 
I, I think it, to me, it, it rings so true when you talk about how they make the three, it's a 302, you said, right? And, and they make it say what they want to say. I went to trial. I was 21 years old and I was guilty as hell. I'm not claiming innocence. However, everybody that testified at my trial lied. The cops that took the stand lied. Yep. And like I said, I was guilty. I'm not claiming innocence, but it just made me think, well, geez, even the person that testified on my behalf lied. And I'm just like, how can anybody really expect to get any type of justice? I mean, I was like, if I were innocent in that situation, I would have been mad as hell. You know? Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's terrible. It's, it, it's what Alan Dershowitz and I call test lying. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a court of law, it's a little off topic, but they they give this question every time somebody pleads guilty. Were you promised anything? Everybody in the courtroom knows that the guy who's pleading guilty has been promised a given sentence. The judge knows it. The prosecutor knows it. The defense attorney knows it. And everybody just goes along with it. And, Can it, I tell you something? Sure. For decades, I have refused, refused to engage in, to take a client who is going to plead guilty and make a deal. Because I refuse to answer that question with a lie. It's exactly why. If someone wants to go to trial, I'll take the case. If somebody wants to make a deal, I say there are loads of lawyers in town who, who represent you. Why is that allowed, though? I mean, when everybody knows that it's it's a lie. I mean, why not just change the rule and just say, were you the, promised the reason, something? Yes, I was promised something. The reason it's allowed is that the courts, state and federal, in order to function, have to provide a very, very strong incentive to keep people from going to trial. And the strong incentive is if you go to trial, your sentence is eight times or <clears throat> ten, times, sure. <clears throat> 10 times as long. There's a word for that. You know what it is? Extortion. <laughs> no, extortion. Extortion, yeah. Extortion. Sure. I, I mean, when I went, I remember going to trial and they originally <clears throat> offered me 18 years and I didn't take it. The reason I didn't take it is because I knew I could beat one of the charges at trial. I was guilty of the charge I beat, but I knew I could beat it. And given that they were offering me 18 years for that charge, I'm thinking, OK, I'll beat that charge. But even though I beat the, the, the worst charge, they ended up giving me nine more years than what they had offered me originally and it just seems like like you said it's 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 extortionary but yeah. i want to i want to get back to the the fbi for, for a second because i want you to give me a real life example where you've seen or heard of them being corrupt now i've heard of plenty especially during the hoover thing and talking to people that i know and other you know criminals and inmates who have dealt with them but you saying it carries a lot more weight than me saying it well there's there's a difference between so, you know, there's two types of corruption. There's financial corruption. We've had many scandals here in Boston with the Boston FBI with financial corruption. Um, so there, there was a period when they were on the payroll of organized crime, for God's sakes. I mean, real scandals. Um, and then there's a different kind of corruption. Career advancement if you get more convictions. And that's one of the incentives for the agents to phony up these 302 reports. So there are two types of corruption, FBI agents. 
And um, federal prosecutors know it, but they pretend it doesn't exist. Judges know it, especially since so many judges are former federal prosecutors, but they pretend they don't know about it. It's a real corruption of the system. Yet if the judges don't reward pleas of guilty, they can't handle their dockets. They don't have time to try more than 5% of the cases brought. And that's because we over-prosecute. If we didn't prosecute so many, the judges wouldn't have this problem of clogged dockets. And we would have less incentive for them to get rid of cases through phony means. Yeah, if we got rid of the drug war, it would probably go a long way. Well, no, well, not probably. The drug war alone. Yeah, it would yeah, go a long way. The drug cases that, alone. These drug laws should have been abolished a long time ago. We're, we're just now getting to the point where some states have decriminalized marijuana, Massachusetts has. Um, but um, th th that alone, the drug war, is, clogs the dockets. So you described yourself, I think, as a liberal libertarian. Yes. That, that's what, and you've been criticizing the FBI. This isn't just, you didn't just pick up this habit last week. I imagine you've been doing this your entire career, criticizing them. Something that's just a pet peeve of mine right now in the, in the present political climate is this. I've heard a lot of people complain about corruption in the FBI, uh, minorities claiming discrimination, you know, they're, they're, they're being prejudiced against. And on the right, and I'm no liberal. I'm a, I'm a libertarian if I had to take a, a label. But on the right, they've defended the FBI. They've supported the FBI. No, law enforcement, you know, we're with you 100%. Now that it's their guy, and I mean Trump, who's dealing with the FBI, all of a sudden now, the FBI is no good. They're corrupt. They're this, they're that. And it's just interesting to me that when it was poor people in poor neighborhoods that were suffering at the hands of the FBI, you couldn't care less. But now that your billionaire hero, it, you think he's being persecuted. It's the end of the world. And I told him the other day, you know, somebody, you're a little late to the party, aren't you? And it's it just, to, to me, it's just maddening. And it doesn't mean that their critique of the FBI is unfounded. I just find the hypocrisy incredibly rich. The worm turns, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <No. laughs> yes, it does. Well, you know, oh. the FBI tried to set me up once. You want, you want to hear a great story? Yes. I was partners with um, a woman named Nancy Gerder. She was the later a federal judge. And she then she's now a professor at Harvard Law School. We're still friends. And... Um, Nancy and I were representing a drug dealer, um, and um, the um, we get a call from somebody who says, I've got evidence that your clients were not even on Nantucket Island when supposedly they accepted a large quantity of marijuana that came in by boat. So Nancy and I were kind of looked at each other and said, you know, we, we knew that the clients were on Nantucket, did accept a load of marijuana, but it would have been uh, unprofessional if we didn't at least listen to this guy who claimed to have evidence our client was innocent. So we call him up to the office, and he sits down, Nancy and I are at the table, and he says, to tell you the truth, your clients are guilty. I don't have evidence. 
But I would be willing, because I like your client, to testify that he was he was with me somewhere else and not on Nantucket Island at that time. And Nancy and I both stood up and said, you're suggesting perjury. This interview is over. Please leave. And he was kind of surprised. He gets up, he's leaving. And we noticed there's a lump over his right shoulder. He was wired. Now these things are miniaturized. But back then they used what's called Kel sets. They were about the size of cigarette packets. And they had wired it badly. So they they put it the, 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 the um they put it on his back. Um and and he was um he he was uh he was wired. The the US attorney was setting us up. You know what his name was? Robert Muller. And, oh, wow. And he was at the time the U.S. attorney in Boston. He later became the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He's done special investigations. Um, and um, I later confronted Mueller and I said, um, Bob, you know, that was really uh, awful. You should have known better. He says, well, I get this information from an informant that you were going to, that he thought that you were, uh, you know, susceptible to this. And it was my duty. I said, you, your duty to listen to a scumbag like this? You knew he was lying. Um, anyway, so Mueller and I did not have good relations after that. And I'll tell you something else. Um, the way they used to get the mafia. Um, so if you walked into a mafia meeting, you would be searched because they figured you might have been wired. They search everywhere except one place they wouldn't search, your crotch. And the reason is that they were sort of these macho males and they were very sensitive about touching the crotch of another male. So the FBI put the listening devices in the crotches of the informants and put away a lot of mafia people because they would not search a, ma a man's crotch. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Okay, I got 10 minutes left with you. So I got to ask you news of the day, the federal indictment of Donald Trump. Is it legitimate? Okay. First of all, I think it's legitimate uh, in terms of laying out a federal crime. And of course, it's very easy to lay out a federal crime. I've written the book called Three Felonies Today, How the Feds Target the Innocent. Because of the nature of federal criminal law, you can manage to tease out a crime over, over, over almost any activity. If, uh, if you know, I, you ask me, um, you know, uh, if I was in Providence on Thursday and I say no, and you, you're a federal agent, and I was in Providence, I just, I will, but I didn't want to go because to tell you about it because I'm married and it was my girlfriend, you know, in Providence. That is a lie. You've lied to an agent. That's a federal crime. You know, little things like that. Um, and um, and so um, it's very easy to lay out. I wrote this book, Three Felonies a Day. My, my thesis was that every law-abiding citizen violates three federal crimes a day. It doesn't even know it because the law is so encompassing. Uh, but the reason I think the Trump... Uh, indictment is problematic is this he is now vying for the republican nomination 
the president. And they are looking, this is now the Democrats who are in charge. They are looking to disable him from running for office. And they figured this is the way to do it. I call it interfering with an honest democratic election. Okay. There's a five-year statute of limitations. They could wait five years to bring this charge. Instead, they're doing it now. It is a political prosecution. I have no sympathy for Trump. I think Trump is a sociopath. I don't like him. I had dealings with him decades ago when I represented Leona Helmsley. Long story I won't go into. Um, I think he's a liar, a cheat. However, this is a democratic society. It is not up to the Department of Justice to decide who gets to run for president. They have plenty of time to wait until if he gets the nomination, then there's going to be an election. It could be the election could be over before the statute of limitations expires. Uh, if he wins, he's going to pardon himself. Let's face it. If he doesn't win, there's plenty of time to uh, in, to indict him. So I think that this is a terrible, terrible, cynical move by the Department of, of Justice. Mind you, I don't think Trump is fit to be president of the United States. Mm -hmm. But that is not the issue. There's three theories that I've heard in defense of Trump here. What you just laid out, I, I don't I don't have an issue with that. I think he broke the law because I've read the indictment. I've looked at the, the Presidential Records Act, and I, I think he's guilty. What you just I'm, said, I'm not arguing his innocence. No, 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 I know, I know. But I want to ask you three specific things that have been said to me. One is that he, as president, he can issue a standing order to declassify all materials that come before him. Another theory that I just uh, listened to a little while ago, I think the guy's name was Robert Barnes. And he said that the president just by, he once there's classified information, once he takes it out of there, it's declassified. He can do whatever he wants with it. And another theory is that he can declassify even after he leaves the White House. Is there any truth to any of that? Because every time I tell somebody to point to a law, they can't. This guy Barnes says it's implicit in Article 2 of the Constitution, which I think is ridiculous. Well, the you, you know, the, the, the answer to your question is whatever five justices of the Supreme Court decided. <laughs> so anything goes. Um, and I think that there is a plausible argument that while certainly while in office that the president can declassify, that it's inherent in the presidential power Um and whether or not I'm right depends on what five justices of the sure. Supreme Court decide. But of course, that to me is not the deciding issue. The deciding issue is the timing. It is obviously political. And it, the Biden administration should be ashamed of itself. Okay. Well, thank you so much again for coming today. Is there anything that you, I didn't let you say or you didn't get to that you think is important and needs to be said? Well, you can join the Libertarian Party, or you could be like me. I, I'm a member of the Libertarian Party. Now, I don't agree with everything because I am a social uh, Democrat. That is, I believe in Social Security. Um, I believe in certain protections so people are they can't fall below a certain bottom. 
Um, in this respect, I disagree with the libertarians, but on liberty issues, they're the thing. I just gave a lecture to the annual convention of the Massachusetts Lib Libertarian Party last month. Um, they know that I differ with them on certain social and economic issues, but on liberty issues, uh, we were 100% in tune with one another. It's Life's complicated. It's, it's hard to be an absolutist. Um, and um, I'm not an absolutist. I'm an absolutist pretty close on free speech. Um, but on other things, um, I have some, some positions that the Republicans sponsor, some positions the Democrats sponsor, some positions the Libertarians sponsor. Why? People say to me, oh, you're inconsistent. Well, I'm not inconsistent. I just am, use rational analysis to pick and choose my issues. Okay. Is there any place that people can find you? Do you have a website or a blog yep. or anything Harvey like that? HarveySilverGlade.com. The, the hardest part is spelling Silverglade because the immigration officers at Ellis Island, instead of naming my, my, my grandparents on my father's side, was a, it was a Russian name. It sounds like Zilberglit. So they transliterated it into English as Silverglade. They could have said Silvergate. It would have been easy because both both are English words, silver and gate, or silver glade, D. They're both English words, silver and glade. Instead, the idiots made the name silver glade, which is constantly misspelled. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> Just to be clear, it's silver glade, G L A T. E, e as in Thomas E, yes. E. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for being here. For now, this is the Rational Egoist. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Until next time.